Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief at the New Books Network, and just a warning about the following interview. We had a bad phone connection, and so the audio is a little bit rough. But in any case, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Good day, and welcome to New Books and South Asian Studies, hosted by Dara and Jarya, historian and law student, out of Bombay, India. That's right, the land of the 150-year-old Indian Penal Code, colonial legacy still going strong. And just so we can find out why, we are going to talk to Catherine Coliburn about her book, Law History, Colonialism, The Reach of Empire. This is, then, a book about the legal history of empire, an examination of the ways in which law and custom, both native and British, were used to manage the colonial empire with good results and bad. Obviously, legal systems in the colonies evolved in response to exigencies on the ground and were also influenced by ideologies as to how best to govern. Catherine is going to talk to us about the different forms colonial legal systems took in different parts of the empire and how they affected these territories and indeed the metropole. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Jai. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. And uh, just welcome to the New Books Network and thank you for doing this for us. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation to uh, myself and the co-editor of the book, Diane Kirkby. Oh, the book's fascinating, you know. So it's uh, an advantage for us. Um, could you actually tell us something about yourself and your academic career to date? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I um, I work in New Zealand currently at the University of Waikato, uh, which is in the North Island of New Zealand. And um, But originally I'm an Australian, and uh, when I put the book together I was still based in Melbourne in Australia, and the book comes out of an international conference um, and the authors who were included in the book were part of that conference. So it's kind of a, it's, a, it's an international collection but it also had its genesis in Australia um, and then I moved to New Zealand. My um, research focus is the history of psychiatry in colonial settings and I'm really interested in questions of colonialism, post-colonialism, um, resistance to empire from indigenous peoples, uh, gender, and a number of interrelated questions. And I teach uh, broadly um, in a number of historical research areas, including global histories, um, histories of colonial Australia and New Zealand, settler and post-settler societies, uh, among other things. So a lot of the research uh, interests and teaching interests come together in a really, um, I think, a very useful fashion. Uh, and, um, yeah, I'll tell you more about the research as we go through. I guess I guess we can come back to some particular themes. So uh, how did this book come about? 
Well, actually, I've been very, very fortunate, and it's a funny thing now, or a, an amusing thing in a sense, to look back. I was uh, finishing my PhD, and um, my postgraduate PhD doctoral supervisor uh, was Diane Kirkby, who's the co-editor of this book. And she asked me uh, when I was finishing the PhD if I would be interested in co-editing the book with her because it came out of a conference that we were both involved with organising. I was one of the organisers. And so she gave me this uh, most amazing experience uh, as a postgraduate student in sort of setting up relationships which were very positive, mentoring relationships, giving me experiences in publishing uh, and she introduced me to the field of law and history, and I think that's something we should talk a lot more about because it's a really interesting, still quite a burgeoning field of, of knowledge and scholarship. Um, and although my, my research work was really about the history of insanity, there were lots of legal aspects to this history, obviously. And um, so she got me interested. She really pushed me to be involved, and we produced the book, and, which was published in 2001, and it's actually just been reprinted as a paperback by Manchester in the Studies in Imperialism series in 2009. So it's regaining some popularity or there's been a new interest in the book, uh, as your interview suggests as well. Um, so really, the book came about because of the conference. And uh, the conference was an international event in Melbourne in 1998. And it was for the Australia and New Zealand Law and History Society. And that's the Society of Lawyers and Historians, which has been going since 1982. And it has um, uh, an annual conference, and it moves around Australia and New Zealand. And this conference was unusual in the sense that it was truly international. A number of those, that society's conferences tend to be a little bit smaller, but this one was larger and it was very international. So, so the book is, it has come from a number of pathways, if you like. Um, a collaboration with a supervisor and a student, a conference with international speakers and a society focused on law and history research, which is really interesting genesis for any book, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, so, well, the title of the law, history, colonialism, the reach of empire, so it's you know, just looking at the relationship between law and history in itself, but, uh, you know, in relation to, well, empire? Yes, yes. Um, that's right. I mean, I think <clears throat> law, law and history, or, or legal history, you know, you could say has a longer kind of um, history, uh, academic history. There are scholars working in, in sort of black letter law histories, histories of legislation, histories of changes, major changes in law from the medieval period on, etc., etc. But to bring this field out, or to challenge this field and to interrogate it, we were trying to use a new kind of question, a new category, which was to sort of suggestively say that the empire was also shaped through law. And you can see in my other discipline, which is history of medicine, my other field rather, um, that we could say that the empire and its peoples was also shaped largely through medicine. And so you've got these, these major knowledge systems, um, these major bodies of, um, of work, I suppose, which have a, what we actually wanted to call the book Empire's Reach. So they have a reach which extends across and which become oppressive forces for many many peoples around empire, emanating from not only the British Empire but also other European colonial imperial powers. So law we saw as, as something that was very much in sort of, um, what's the word, the empire was 
was kind of founded on notions of British imperial law, and that's very problematic. And, and how do we kind of pull that apart and question its power? So I think we were trying to bring something new to that field of law and history by um, introducing this question of empire along the way. This is tell us something about the book as a whole, you know, about the various categories and sections in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing. Um, I was laughing with you before because it, it is a while ago that we produced it. But um, I still, when I, in fact, going back to it for this interview has been really useful to me because I'm about to start new work which comes back to the question of law, actually, after many years of not thinking as much or, or as specifically about law. And what we did in the book was we looked at areas that traversed the different aspects of empire very broadly. So we had things like um, customary law or uh, you know, legal custom among indigenous original peoples and then introduced laws or laws that are imposed and come from uh, the imperial power itself and, and through colonialism and its practices. We looked at laws on the ground and the question of common law and its creation in different sites. Um, Australian and New Zealand historians are very accustomed, and Canadian um, historians, to talking about Indigenous peoples and the regulation of their spaces and their lives through law in settler colonies. So that's a large aspect of the book. Um, we talk about justice. Uh, we talk about frontiers, you know, these kinds of big words really that get explored in different chapters, different parts of the book. And we talk about, as much as we can, about responses from the colonised, but I guess that's probably one area of the book that could have um, been more pronounced or, or that now if we redid the book there would be much more material, many more scholars to add to this book um, in terms of, of our collection. So I think it, it sort of covers a very wide territory and there's a few historians taking different approaches to the question of sovereignty, for instance, in um, different imperial contexts. So it's divided into five sections and um, just looking through um, the, the very legalities of colonialism, how colonialism has a, a legality to it, right through to the very last section, part five, which is about the legacy of colonialism. And that's a really important section where we reflect back, including a final chapter, which is more like an interview with four historians talking about their work, their practice, and we reflect back on, on the questions of gender, empire, law, and questions of race. So it's a broad range of books, and it includes a number of very interesting individual chapters. Um, and, you know, I think it does, as the general editor says, you know, it, it seems to me now, and all this time has elapsed for me, but it does seem to have made a very interesting contribution to a field that was being sketched out. So you use the term colonialism's legality. What exactly do you mean by that? That's a really good question. I think that one thing that we've been really um, aware of in producing that book and something that I've been aware of in my own work is what does it mean to have law in history? You know, what's the history of law? Are we looking instead at something um, which is more sort of diffuse or less easy to actually pin down? So we're not only, we might be talking about specific legislation and its introduction, uh, on the ground, for instance, how to regulate certain practices or behaviours or how to introduce a penal code into a new settler colony or something like that. But we're also talking about the very legalities uh, involved in the settlement of new places. You know, what did it mean that um, imperial powers 
assume so much uh, power over land that really were not theirs, particularly in the, the cases of, of Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Um, but perhaps particularly Australia where there were no treaties except for one very fleeting treaty in the colony of Victoria. And the, the, you know, the, the illegality, I suppose, of, of the spread of imperialism across places. And this is something that Lauren Benton has talked about in her work about the global legality of empire, um, more recently than this book, um, when, when it came out, Benton hadn't written that book. Um, so legality in a broad sense. Also, perhaps you could say, um, very particularly, you know, what, what sorts of legal relationships are forged in colonial, settler colonial contexts or in imperial contexts, and what kinds of relationships therefore are produced through law. So I think that's another aspect to the meaning of legality, and it's, it, it's again that sort of diffuse power that the law has that, um, that it can kind of run through and across societies in this way. So I think that's what I mean by legality, um, and I'm sure authors meant other things as well in the different chapters. Yeah, there's a very interesting place here on page 22 in the last sentence. It says, modern imperialism in oil marks the terminal extremity of law. Yes, that's right. And um, yeah, I guess in different chapters, now that chapter is an interesting one because it does talk about resistance to colonial rule, and you know, oftentimes the law itself prescribed what sort of resistance was available to people. And in the case of the Australian colonies, Aboriginal people, for instance, were deemed to be equal in the, the eyes of the law, but when it came to trials which established the rights and wrongs of violence on the frontier, that wasn't really the case. And in other colonies too, you know, rebellion, resistance was not seen as legal, um, even though it was, you know, in effect a perfectly justifiable on the part of the colonizers. So the map is a moral question to, to the, the question of legality, absolutely. Yeah, and that is actually a logical extension into the next part of the book, Imperialism and Citizenship, when you're actually talking about how the law was used to define who could and could not be, like, you know, could occupy various specified places in the empire. Yeah, that's right. Citizenship's an incredibly important thing in the, the book, but also more broadly in this kind of field of study. And more recently, too, I think you know, there have been a number of scholars who have explored citizenship um, and the law since we produced this book. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a kind of interesting... It, in some ways, um, it means a lot of different things, citizenship. I think when we put it together, we had different chapters. Um, for instance, my own chapter, which I still think it's really hard for us to place in this book, and I was, you know, making a transition from my own research... To, to try and make it fit the, the contours of the book so that I could work with Diane Kirkby and, and the whole um, project. But so my research focuses on how um, populations of those who were deemed to be insane um, were uh, regulated through, through laws, you know, to confine them inside institutional settings. And so that's one version of the question of citizenship and the law. You know, how, how did settler societies make laws to um, replicate the, what happened back home in, in the British imperial setting in, the, in the, the home countries, for instance, not only Britain, of course, but that's a good example, um, to sort of show how the citizenry would operate. And in that citizenry, to conform and to be well-managed and to keep law and order in place, 
there would have to be laws around things like insanity and around um, criminal behaviours and so on and so forth. But more worryingly and more disturbingly, going back to your earlier comment, there had to be, at least from this sort of colonist point of view, uh, there, there, were deemed to, there was deemed to be a need to control indigenous peoples and colonised peoples through the law. And so that section of the book on citizenship also talks about non-whites and the regulation they um, confronted or, or were confronted by. For instance, definitions of, of race and identity in, in, in Canada and in the um, Supreme Court of Canada in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, Constant Stackhouse has done some very interesting legal history projects on a number of themes. Um, the question of Indigenous civil rights in 19th century New Zealand, Canada and Australia. So you can see, um, again, those countries where there's a really shared history, you know, here of the legacy, again, of colonialism, um, how laws were produced and proliferated and were very similar across these three jurisdictions which controlled Indigenous peoples in different ways and which uh, forbade things like the use of Indigenous languages, which educated children in certain forms and fashions, which allowed Christian religions to come in and, and also create a kind of space for management of peoples. Um, and then there's a chapter on South Africa also. So I think you can see in all of these ways the, the regulation of citizens like the MAD, that on the one hand, um, which is a, a kind of example of a form of regulation of citizens, but, but probably more drastic and more worryingly, all these all these original inhabitants. Um, and that's the crux in this book, I really think. So I still feel that my chapter's somewhat of a... I mean, it's still relevant, but it was it was kind of slotting in there where I think that the real argument was around race, empire and race. Um, and my chapter also talks about Chinese, so there is an argument to sort of make connections between those who belong and those who don't belong in these societies. Yeah, yeah you specifically focused on female inmates and on Chinese inmates in the silence. Yeah, um, I, I think what's really interesting to me, particularly with my more recent research, is just the diversity of colonial settler societies, you know, mm-hmm. racial diversity. And so where there was a lot of legislation directed at some groups, um, it's really obvious, therefore, the anxieties that are bubbling up under the surface. And they're around Chinese immigration in the colonies of Victoria and New Zealand, and they're around um, controlling the spaces for Indigenous peoples and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of kind of... There's the question of the new immigrants coming in, although these were all immigrants in these societies, so quite frankly, they were all newcomers except for the original inhabitants who'd been there somewhat longer. Um, and there's the question of managing racial anxiety and the question of racial difference, which becomes a sort of huge problem, I think, for these places. Um, so how does racial difference manage within the asylum itself? Because you had all these different inmates, I mean, you had the Chinese, you had the white inmates, the female inmates, and obviously you had, like, you know, indigenous inmates. So how were these people, like, you know, kept in the asylum in terms of special organisation? Yeah, that's another really good question, and I think one of the interesting things about New Zealand and Australia, and I try to compare the two sites in my chapter, um, is that they were not separate segregated spaces for the Chinese or the Māori or the Aboriginal inmates, uh, compared with, for instance, what happened in India, where there were, in fact, European um, hospitals for the insane or hospitals for European insane and native-only asylums. 
And this is a really interesting and critical distinction, I think. So at the level of my analysis really kind of relates to the level of discursive analysis around, and it's quite sort of difficult in, in, a, in a sense to kind of tease this out, but how difference itself was constructed, even though there were no physical separations or segregations, difference was constructed nonetheless along linguistic lines. Um, and that, that gets us into the territory of how you analyse historical materials and archival sources, how you interrogate the, the language of the past. So um, there were ways of talking about different identities in the institutions, which I tease out in my chapter, that even fleeting references can tell us an enormous amount about the expectations. And I think by the end of writing that particular work, and by the end of writing my actual doctoral thesis some years ago now, I realised that what was at the heart of this was um, different, you know, difference was the problem because the ideal institutional inmates were still going to be people who you could cure very quickly and move them out again to be productive in a colonial society. People who were going to be um, chronically unwell long term, which is true for many mental health patients, to be honest, um, and people who were going to be disruptive in the, in the sense of racial difference or bodily difference or gender difference is another example, were going to pose problems. So these are subtle kinds of distinctions. They're very based in linguistics, but I can show that the Chinese are talked about in very distinctive ways in the institutions. Māori are talked about in very distinctive ways in the New Zealand setting. There are very, very few Aboriginal inmates in Australian institutions, particularly in Victoria, which was my focus, because by the time uh, the institutions are really established, the Aboriginal people have been moved on, have been segregated in mission stations, They've died through violence, disease. The populations have been drastically reduced, which is a different setting. Uh, sorry, a different scenario from the New Zealand one, for instance. So the complexities here are very interesting. You know, the management of, of difference in the institution—it's it's a subtle thing. I still I still hope I'm getting the analysis right because I'm I'm trying to work out what's going on. You know, when there's a certain kind of sense of, of an ideal patient, but that person is elusive. You know, there's no ideal. Um, person who's going to get better quickly and move on up, or there are very few. So, what are the differences between Australia and New Zealand in terms of the way the asylums were organised, or the approaches towards the uh, for people who have called lunatics at that point? Um, yes. Yeah, so, you mean spatially inside the institutions, or you know, in terms of the approach? I mean, what were the like? You know, how were the asylums managed in Australia and in New Zealand? What are the main differences? Well, they were pretty similar, really. In fact, New Zealand uh, borrowed quite a lot of its legislation from um, Victoria. And so Victoria, you know, it, it's an offshoot colony from New South Wales. It's Port Phillip until 1851, and then it becomes the colony of Victoria. But there's a lot of influence coming from the first colony of Australia, which is New South Wales. And there's a lot of shared characteristics between all of these colonial settings. And New Zealand and Australia are very, very similar. Um, one of the major differences I've already pointed to, and that would be the populations of the indigenous insane, which, although they're negligible in Australia, in Victoria at least, there's probably more in, I know there are more Aboriginal patients in parts of Western Australia and Queensland as well. Um, but, com yeah, compared between Victoria and, and New Zealand, they're you know, very sort of similar aside from the, the addition of Māori patients in Auckland. Um, they have a shared system of 
managing the institutions through asylum inspection, through reporting, through commissions of inquiry. The legislation is adapted from Victorian legislation, which in turn is influenced by English and Irish and Scottish legislation. So they're very much imperial institutions, you know, in my mind. They sit right at that nexus of um, empire and colony. Um, and the only thing I would sort of add to that, in recent years I wrote a book about families and their interactions with institutions for the insane. And I argued there that we should really be looking at the colonies as a shared sort of space for inquiry rather than saying, let's compare New Zealand to Britain or let's compare Australia to Britain. Let's instead look at this kind of shared colonial settler society as a, a, a kind of regional site, you know. So I've been arguing very strongly that they share these things across and they also have some differences. But more similarities than differences, I have to say. And um, the other big thing is they're all public institutions, so they're very few private ones. There's one in Dunedin, in the bottom part of the South Island of New Zealand, called Ashburn Hall, uh, in the 19th century, and very few in Victoria or New South Wales that operate for very long periods of time, very sporadic. So the public populations of the insane are very similar. You know, so I think that there's a very strong argument for this being a region of similar similarities really. And for them to be more similar to each other than, than to Britain. <coughs> so I'll move on to the next part of the book, you know, justice, custom and the common law. Uh, I think that takes more of a macro approach. Yes. And it's uh, more generic. That's right, yeah. And um, one of the interesting things here is, you know, sort of questions of narrative, you know, how you tell a story and how you how do you kind of evaluate questions of what justice was when you're looking at clashing systems of law in a sense. Um, so indigenous peoples in parts of the Pacific, in parts of New Zealand, that had their own customary practices around law and their own questions their own notions of legality and then what's being imposed from outside. Um, so that section really examines this, the, the way justice is very, or notions of justice is very, um, are very embedded in an imperial framework, you know, um, that could be contested if you look at the evidence from different points of view. And so they are about writing stories of law and history and, and sort of asking us to think again about what we read, what we see, what we perceive. Um, the, the word narrative is used in particular by Helen Gardner, who writes about a missionary's narrative of an event, but I'm using it more broadly as well to talk about a sort of grand narrative of, of historical change and you know how we need to ask questions about what happened on the ground in colonial imperial settings. And I'm using those in a kind of slipping between those terms, but they are quite particular, I'm sure. Um, the other one that, that's very interesting to me there, they're all interesting chapters, but Nancy Wright's chapter about the problem of Aboriginal evidence in early New South Wales, uh, and it goes back to something I said before about, you know, that there was this assumption in the rule of law that everyone was equal before the law, but not when it comes to Aboriginal people being on tried or giving testimony and being interrogated, and, and you know, this is, this is another way you can get at that grand narrative and pull it apart and say, but was there justice really? And how can we sort of take this through an argument when we look very closely at particular settings, particular events? So yeah, I think that's a really interesting section of the book. And common law is something 
that we need to come back to again um, to think about this question of, of settler colonialism on the ground. You know, it's not a simple adaptation of laws from imperial powers. Uh, it's often a kind of um, mutation or a malleable. Yeah, it's malleable. It's played with. It's adapted, and there is resistance. There are forms of resistance to it, and I think that we need to do a lot more work around common law. To be honest, yeah. So there's openings here for more scholarship. Yeah, one thing I find very interesting is that when you talk about common law, you're obviously talking about the common law of England, you know, with the law of the empire. I mean, it was manned by the Scots, it was manned by the Irish, you know, so was there no place for Scottish law here? Yes, that's right, exactly. And one of the really important things for um, scholars is to say, you know, what, what are the nuances, what are the inflections of these laws, the same with the questions of medical practice for the insane, again, going back to that briefly, that you know, they're not all, you can't just say British and subsume them. They're quite particular, they're based on local uh, experience and then they're modified and they, they change, you know. So the Irish might have had a lot more um, impact on the colony of Victoria in law uh, than the English, actually, depending on what sort of fields and aspects you're talking about. So so when I use the term common law, I guess I'm talking about the fact that you can, in, in the sort of field of law and history, you could be talking about um, law with a capital L and, and sort of these questions of the law and its extent and the spread of laws, tools, and the creation of legislation. Um, or you can be talking about these kind of really detailed practices of what laws were enacted when and where and how and why and who brought them into being. And you know, all of, all of this is part of that mix for law and history scholarship. I'm just wondering, uh, was the indigenous law ever codified and set down in the statute books or something, or like was it just left as something informal that could be administered by the local population amongst themselves? Um, no, not not ever codified. Um, there was the odd practice, a particular practice around uh, traditional, um, say, an Aboriginal society, traditional punishment. More recently, though, in the twentieth century. Um, most often runs kind of alongside or parallel, but not recognised by by the, the the dominant laws of the day. And you know, I think maybe come enters the evidence, enters the realm of evidence. So if somebody was being tried, there might be a sort of discussion about what was usually done in that culture or that group or that or that setting. You know, um, this comes up in a, a number of ways. But it's very fleeting. It's very yeah, there's no sense in which it's given the same kind of meaning or the same kind of power, at least not in the 19th century, and not for a long time in the 20th century either. Um, that's not uh, something I'm particularly well-versed in in terms of my own research, but I know that from my teaching of these, some of these subjects anyway. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that we don't have a, a sense of um, reifying Indigenous laws in these places very much at all. Uh, the interesting thing that happened with South Asia, as you probably know already, is that uh, indigenous law in terms of local Hindu law and local Muslim law, you know, that was codified and obviously uh, got the Indian Penal Code. But indigenous tribal law, you know, I don't really think it was codified no. and it was just left alone. Yeah. No, that's right. And that, sound, that sounds very similar. And again, that might, that's in a way what we mean when we talk about the, the reach of empire, you know, that sort of um, embodying of imperial notions of what law is, law with a capital L. I think that's what the book is trying to sort of suggest.
Yeah, and uh, so obviously you have this issue of uh, land and sovereignty and frontiers, you know. And uh, that's actually something that's still being contested, you know, in the modern Indian state because a lot of, like, you know, land laws with regard to tribal land. I mean, there's still been no solution and it's like the conflicts are just emerging because it's only now that the heartland is being exploited for, you know, mining and things like that. So, would there something more about the section? Yes, yeah, and, and as you talk about that, I realised there could have been so much more about India in this book, of course. <laughs> um, we've got Radha D'Souza there, but there's, and she was based at Waikato for, for um, some years. That's in the final section of the book. Um, yeah, sovereignty, there's been a lot of debate in, in Australian and New Zealand scholarship, and to a lesser extent, Canadian and American scholarship, about sovereignty and imperial frontiers, or colonial frontiers, really. Um, this has been the subject of, of really intense fighting and conflict, I should say, between historians. And this book, I suppose, came out right at that point, really, when a lot of these issues were blowing up on the stage in the Australian academic setting. And I don't know whether you've heard of, of the history wars in Australia, which um, centred on two opposing sides to the debate about whether Aboriginal peoples really were as affected as badly in the frontier wars as had been claimed by revisionist historians writing from the 1970s and 80s onwards. So when we wrote this book, or when we edited this book and, and people wrote chapters for it, we were entering this debate about sovereignty and frontier. So it had a kind of wider meaning, if you like. So the interventions that the, the authors here make were powerful, and I remember us thinking very carefully about who we would have in this book um, based on who was at the conference. And John Burroughs had been um, a keynote speaker, a very young uh, academic at that point in time, new academic, but had a real, um, what the Māori historians would say, mana, in terms of his identity on the world scene as an Indigenous or an academic with Indigenous background himself in Canada. And it was very important to us that we were able to sort of enter this debate in a kind of dignified way from the point of view of law and history because it was it was a very difficult time for Australian history scholarship and to a lesser extent New Zealand. So in the wider kind of realm of everyday life, you know, Australians and New Zealanders were debating whether histories that were negative about colonialism should even be written, you know, and this is kind of disturbing um, on a whole lot of levels. And it's taken 10 or so years really or more to work through the political realm, the public realm, the, the role of the public intellectual. So this section is not a kind of um, accident, none of them are, um, but it's positioned there to talk very seriously about some of these things from a law and history standpoint. So we do have John Burroughs talking about the power of sovereignty in one particular case in the Canadian setting. And I remember his paper very well. I remember the, the audience, I remember the kind of reception that he got talking about this work. Um, and, you know, again, teasing out what the sort of, I guess, the responses from Indigenous peoples is to European-imposed notions of rights, of sovereignty of land and, and ownership over land, which is still highly contested. Um, similarly, in New Zealand, Māori land rights were, at the time of this book's publication, there was already the Treaty of Waitangi in place, obviously, that was from 1840, but the tribunal which was dealing with land claims and which continues to do so even though successive governments have tried to sort of suggest there should be a time limit to 
these claims from different iwi or tribes in New Zealand. Um, so the historicising of some of these questions of Aboriginal title, native title in the Australian context, um, treaty claims, tribunal claims, um, the way property rights are constructed over time historically, you know, it's, it's a very, very important kind of intervention into the debate because the longer view is um, one that's utilised in the courts of law um, as John Burroughs' chapter suggests because, you know, it's a 1990s case. The longer view of what happened in the 19th century has a... But then, you know, there are a number of historians, who, including Indigenous historians but also Europeans, who can contribute to that debate and take these this evidence into a courtroom and, and say, well, you know, this was wrongfully taken, this parcel of land was carved up um, without permission, there wasn't really an understanding on the part of the Indigenous tribe at the time, or you know, whatever the debate might be around a particular question. Um, and, you know, the, so that those three chapters that I've mentioned that all talk about, or oh, John Weaver's the other one I'm thinking of there that talks about land rights um, and the native land purchase in New Zealand in the 1840s. <clears throat> they all focus on, on questions of Indigenous sovereignty versus European notions of sovereignty. And the other, the fourth chapter there um, introduces the question of gender. And, you know, we sort of struggle with this in the book, like my chapter too, which sits slightly outside the questions of, of race and indigeneity. But gender is another important aspect of settler colonial identities, the dimensions of of property, who gets to own it, is gendered as well as raced. So this section of the book tries to countenance all those those ideas. Um, and we hope, you know, we hope we sort of think a little bit there about land from a number of points of view and also about sovereignty and what that might mean. So, you know, in different ways there are different sort of interventions into those debates that I mentioned. Yeah, you know what I find interesting, uh, in, at least in terms of not the purely settler colonies, but you know, of course, the uh, colonies which already had substantial populations like India, you know, and maybe some of the African colonies. It's like there's this tendency among post-colonial government, you know, to actually repudiate and accept colonial, like, you know, laws and especially those relating to land as it suits them, you know. Yes. So, for example, yeah, you have this 1893 boundary between Afghanistan and Pakistan. I mean, that was like, that's perfectly accepted and that's something that the government says, okay, you know, this was drawn, was properly delineated and we don't want to tamper with it. Whereas on the other hand, you have the, you know, boundary on India's northeast between India and China. And I mean, it's like both the governments are like, you know, this is a colonial boundary and, you know, we don't really need to accept it if we don't want it. So, I mean, I think they're actually kind of using colonial law to further their own ends as and when they see it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and every time there's a debate in the Middle East recently, you know, you can, you, and you don't have to scratch the surface very far to find sort of an imperial power or a colonial legacy as well. Um, so we have global, a question of the global spread of imperialism from a, a range of different European imperial powers who, you know, in the late 19th century, who all, um, Know, got together and decided it was okay to make decisions about, for instance, African geographical boundaries, you know, and recalibrate them, redesign them. And that's just one example. I mean, India's um, obviously there's a longer history of the presence of imperial powers and then resistance to those, and, and what really happened in 1947 and beyond, you know, is of course really built on, as you know far better than I do, 
on those on those legacies of colonialism. So the land, but the land thing is, it, as you say, it's utilised by governments now all the time in very arbitrary ways, you know, in ways that are quite sneaky. Um, and I mentioned global, the global kind of point early on because I think now our real concern ha- has to be for the, the kind of future of um, international community in the face of these kinds of virtually arbitrary decision making. Um, because of whatever government of the day, you know, decides to adopt. And, you know, I, I just find teaching global history to students so fascinating because we, we teach that paper um, through five major themes. And the first one is imperialism and colonialism. And it embeds everything they then find out about environment, uh, about health and medicine, about war, about the economy, you know. It all begins with this kind of way the world is structured and restructured from the 17th century onwards through imperialism. So, you know, I, I think that um, it's very deep, this topic. It, it can reach very, very far. I'm so happy to finally evaluate the legal legacy of colonialism, you know, as a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, obviously, in the greatest system aspect. That's really complicated, isn't it? Because different countries have different forms of... Um, Intervention, you know, I mean, in India, the, the so-called indirect colonialism of the British leads to an adoption of, you know, a lot of Western practices in, in institutions as it does elsewhere. Enough. Yeah, which was probably a good thing. I mean, in terms of like, you know, it actually helps to combat a lot of oppressive, like, you know, native customs, you know, especially with regard to women. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. yeah, and and you know, so it's very difficult to evaluate one one sort of set of legacies. But I mean if you could you could talk about it as um, a very strong discursive legacy, the, the the powerful legacy of the language of law, which again I think that's what our book tries to talk about. That's why we we had wanted to call it um, Empire's Reach and then we changed the wording in the title. So it's this kind of um, the way that there's a diffusion of ideas, a language, a way of thinking, a dis- or several discourses, but a, a particular sort of discourse from the construction of ideas about legality. And you know, I, I think, yeah, I wouldn't really be able to sort of sum up the answer particularly sort of succinctly, except to say that I think it's very, um, it's something that historians need to keep looking at and, and reinterrogating and from different angles. For instance, the latest topic of my um, my own, which I'm really hoping to get back into soon, is the question of mobility, and you will you will have noticed mobility being sort of talked about by a number of very interesting historians, and I feel like I've jumped into it slightly late, but um, it was there present in the chapter for the book where I talk about these different populations who end up in, in a colonial setting from all over the world, really, and who find themselves ensnared in these kinds of systems of meaning, these kinds of languages. Um, out of place and therefore caught in that web, that kind of imperial web. So mobility is another really interesting global history question, isn't it? You know, the sort of the movement of peoples, um, which has been going on for a long time, but takes on new meanings in the 21st century as well. So mobile people, mobility, questions of how the law itself is mobile, these are all, I think, up for grabs as new topics for inquiry. So do you think your research for the future is just on any of these? I mean, already you obviously told us something about it, um, but where do you see the field going? Um, the, the law and history field? 
Do you mean? Um, yeah, and obviously around the third, you know, in connection with that. Yeah, I think, well, I think increasingly the sort of the world history or the global history angles are really important and that they are um, meta-narratives or overarching narratives which some people, some historians find it harder to work with those and prefer to work in, you know, sort of smaller micro-history approaches. But I think both are possible. I think you can combine both. And um, someone very wise said to me recently that an edited collection should only exist where you can't achieve the same thing in one sole author book or, you know, one authored book and where, where you need to kind of get across some territory. And I think that that's true. So I think that we need to do some of those macro studies in a collaborative way, you know, with different authors, to talk about different sites and then to thread them together in a meaningful way and show how, um, you know, different experiences in different places come up or add up to a sum um, in terms of, of the reach of law or the way law and history are kind of connected or how histories of law should be written or... Know, whatever you want to say about it. So I'm interested in macro approaches in global history and um, I'm also really interested in taking case studies to explore that, you know, so that you can drill down into those archives of local places and look at what's happening. Um, my own work, I've got another um, manuscript in preparation which is going to try and do that, which is about insanity and identity and empire. And again, it's the Manchester University Press Studies and Imperialism series. And it's um, it's only being in the, it's in the writing stage now, but it's um, based on some uh, collaborative primary archival research with a large, very large database. So it does combine those kinds of macro and micro approaches to writing history. Um, while it doesn't look specifically at law, the sort of project um, that comes out of it on mobility and the law is the next thing which I'll move to, which will actually bring me full circle back to this one that we've been talking about, which is nice because I can come back to something that I've been interested in for a long time and which has moved through my my research sort of um, practices. And I have to say too for Diane, who was the co-editor and the senior editor for that book project, um, her own work has done similar things and moved to sort of large topics but also utilise smaller examples. So, so I think there's a lot of um, space out there for historians to explore with these modes of writing history. And uh, legal historians not getting stuck in close analysis of black letter law, but to think more broadly about the impact of theoretical trends in the discipline, writing about history. How do you, how do you actually talk about language? You know those kinds of things. I think that's really really important for historians. Um, yeah, definitely, then there are some good insights. And, uh, well, uh, you've taken up a lot of your time. Um, but uh, one final question. We've talked a lot here about you know, political law, administrative law, something that deals with people. What about mercantile law? I mean, that would probably have been strongly influenced by colonialism. So, is there any work on that? That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, there's been um, this. Um there's been a little bit of work coming through the, the World History Scholarship um, around systems, trading, shipping, oceans, uh, those kinds of themes. And I think one of the big new themes really is going to be, well, it already is, it already is before I said it, obviously. It's just something I, I noticed um, in the last few years, people writing about the ocean as a space and the sea as a, as a sort of site for investigation. So the way that spaces are um, created in law across 
oceans across those kinds of domains, you know, that's another really interesting area. So, so I think I think that is already kind of underway, and it's something I um, would like to know more about myself, actually. Yeah, there's so many little nooks and crannies in this discipline. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as you understand, in India, we are very mercantile bank of mind. <laughs> so I think you think of that. But uh, thanks very much for doing this, and I hope to interview you again when uh, you have your new book out. Oh, thank you very much, Dara, and thank you for your time. I hope it made sense, and I look forward to seeing um, how you use the interview. Thank you. Oh, thank you. A lovely podcast about the rule of law and the reach of law. And now perhaps we'll have fewer questions as to why the 150-year-old Indian Penal Code endures yet. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.